0: Welcome back everybody to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. We're sitting here again today. My name's Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer.
1: Scott Wright, mediocre journalist, the only person in the room who hasn't been to the beach recently, I think.
2: Kelly Turner, not a doctor. You are correct.
1: Damn it. I have got to get to the beach Safe. sometime.
2: Whose fault is that? Scott? It's
1: mine, I know. I know. Yep. But yeah, you guys are both tanned and and look refreshed and I'm just dragging along over here <laughs> as usual.
2: You need some uh, beach therapy.
1: Yeah, well, I'll go down to Jake's on the Lake this afternoon and get semi-beach therapy.
2: Okay, there you that's go. good. Oh. Get a get a Cabo Bloody Mary.
1: Yeah, and some of that, uh, I don't know what the dessert is this week. I think it's apple is caramel it apple? cheesecake. Yeah,
2: yeah oh. something like that. So
1: I'm taking yeah. some of that home. Jake's on the Lake, not a sponsor, but could be. Could be. I'm going to mention it to him again when I see him this I afternoon.
0: Him. Yeah. yeah I, you might be barking up the wrong tree there.
1: <laughs> Jake, spend a dime? I don't think so. <laughs>
0: He's like, y'all already talked about me. What do I yeah. need to spend any money for? <laughs>
2: right. You're, this is, That's hey, exactly what he would say, hey, too. Jake, this is the last free shout-out. That's it. Shout out. That's
1: my fault. It won't happen again.
2: Last free shout-out for Jake's on the leg. If you want some more shout-outs,
1: you're going to have to pay it's for gonna it. It's going to cost you. Yeah. <laughs> all right
2: he's somewhere listening going whatever yeah. yes <laughs>
1: yeah i've got a shout out but you have a do you want to do the palate cleanser before we do anything else uh, you want we, to tell that story
2: whichever you whatever you want to i'm do.
1: curious i don't know the story you just told me the title of this <laughs> uh palate cleanser so please i want right. to know about
2: so it i'm this, intrigued yeah this palate cleanser comes to us from travis west uh-huh. aka shorty yeah we've mentioned him before a very
1: very uh, avid and uh, dedicated listener to the mm-hmm. show one of, of our show. favorite
2: fans yeah so this this was too intriguing it was just so funny all right well you're already title, giggling so all right the title of this article this is from upi.com okay turtle takes a ride in the back of kentucky police cruiser
1: turtle a turtle okay like the animal i'm with you so far
2: and there's a little picture of him and he's in the back and he's literally looking out the window of the Chris, he looks so he forlorn
1: for a turtle <laughs>
2: <laughs> so i'm just gonna read this article to you because okay. it's, it's priceless all right this happened on june the 9th so we're a little bit behind in reporting well, we've this. been
1: doing that for three years now yeah, a little true. bit behind
2: yeah a turtle found loitering in the parking lot of a Kentucky bank was apprehended and loaded into the back of a squad car, but ultimately released.
1: I'm not sure that turtles are capable of doing anything <laughs> except loitering.
2: Yes. <Yeah>, so, so-, <laughs> <laughs> so the Glasgow Police Department said an officer responded to Edmonton State Bank on a report of a turtle occupying the parking lot and refusing to leave.
1: Oh, so it was in somebody's spot. It was in the <laughs> bank president's parking spot. I don't he's know got pulled with the PD, so... I don't okay. know
2: if it was the president's spot, but he was refusing to leave, or she, I don't know. I don't know how you tell a turtle. Uh, let's not get into that. I don't want to. <laughs> the department shared a photo of the shelled suspect riding in the back of a police cruiser. The turtle was given a warning and released at a nearby body of water. <laughs>
1: All right.
0: You know, (laughs) speaking of Kentucky, the kids are going to church camp in Kentucky, Uh but I didn't know where they were going. And I was, I knew they were going to church camp and I was asking Ellison, I was like, where are you going? She's like, ah, you know, it's the state that looks like the chicken. Oh. (laughs) And I said, and in my mind, I'm thinking like a, a, a chicken, like a Like the shape
2: of a chicken. Yes. And I'm thinking,
0: I don't, I don't know this state. I said, are you talking about like fried chicken? Like, are you? Are you making a Kentucky Fried Chicken re- uh, reference? And she's like, "No, you know the man in the in the map, and he's holding some chicken."
2: <laughs> what? I'm and I
1: totally confused. <laughs> I, I, said, I thought I was. What
2: are they teaching you in school these <laughs> what days? It's happening. Yeah. But what, you- what grade is Ellison going into? She's going to be a sophomore. <laughs> She's 15 years old. The man holding the
0: chicken. So, Kentucky. Yeah, I guess. So, if you... But she showed it to me. If you pull up... I need everyone to pull up a map of the United States. Okay. With the states outlined. All right. And if you look at that map, and you look in the middle, the feet of the man are Louisiana. And then you go on up from that, and you can see... I can't remember. Don't quote me on this. Anyway, Geography. But the man is holding a platter... Of which chicken. is which is Tennessee? Tennessee
1: is the platter,
0: and Kentucky and is, is a piece of chicken on top. The piece
2: of chicken,
1: and that's how they learn it now. <laughs>
0: I don't know. <laughs> that's what I said. I said, "How does this teach you the states?" And she's like, "No, that's not really. Um, that's not really what I mean. Like, that's not how we learn." I this sure thing. hope not. But we just learned that 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 man's there, and I said, "Well, what states are in the man?" She didn't
1: know. Yeah, I mean, when we learned the states, we got a blank map one day and. Our yes. teacher said, tomorrow, this should be filled in, or you're going to have to fill this in in the classroom tomorrow. Go home tonight and learn it.
2: And then the after that, it's the capital. Yeah. The oh, yeah. State. State, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. That was like, what, fifth grade? Yeah. We never so, learned about the man grade? holding a plate of chicken. Uh-uh. I don't know who. Someone please tell me which teacher's doing that. I'm going to
1: have to get that cleaned <laughs> up. then
2: she was like, you know,
0: Michigan's a glove. And I'm like, I said, the only thing I ever heard, Michigan does kind of like a mitten. Yeah. The only I thing guess. I ever heard compared to an article of clothing or something was Italy's a boot. Italy <laughs> is a boot. Yeah. But that's And it. we can't
1: say what Florida is shaped like, so oh, move along. Oh, yeah. This yeah, is would... an R-rated show sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God>. PG <PG-13> thirteen anyway. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I'm not even. I'm going to have to look at a map though, and Mm -hmm. and do this. But in the uh, state that's the chicken, the uh, the plate of chicken, they've arrested a turtle. They have arrested a turtle who refused to leave a bank parking lot.
0: (laughs) Oh. the funnier Whatever. the funnier part of that too is she also said the man is looking east and that's how you know east and west and i said that should not no, be how that's you never how you i said i was on board until right now that should not be how you're learning east that's and no. west. If that's no. your
1: only way to learn then you're wow. going to be lost A lot.
0: What is happening? Yeah, because then you go to Europe and then now you're all thrown off.
1: Mm.
2: What? (laughs) Mm -mm. No. I've got to know which teacher's teaching this. So that we can publicly shame Shame this person on our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, you have a shout out?
1: Cameron Gossett. Okay. And that completes our loop of the entire Mark Gossett family. We've mentioned them (laughs) all on the show now. Uh, But Cameron, I saw her last weekend. She is about to move to Charleston. Awesome. where her brother already lives yes. and is in law school, yes. uh, Cade. Yes. And uh, so Cameron said, once again, love the podcast. Can't wait to drive out to Charleston so that I can listen to it again for seven hours in a Oh, row.
2: nice. Okay. So, well, hello, Cameron. Shout out to thank Cam, you. and thank thank good you luck for... with the
1: next part of your life.
2: Yeah, that's exciting. Thank you for listening and taking us with you to Charleston. Yes,
1: yeah. Because I've love... never been. That's the only way I'm ever going to get there. Oh, man, no, wait. We... I have been to Charleston. I haven't been to Savannah.
2: I've been to Savannah, Savannah, but I've not been, been to Charleston. Savannah. Right.
1: Charleston, wow. yes; Savannah, no.
2: Okay, I've been.
1: To- it's on the bucket list.
2: Yeah, I want to go to Charleston. Yeah. Now, my dad has been to both, and he says he prefers Charleston.
1: Really? Okay. Okay. Well, screw it. No Savannah for me then. I've already.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love Savannah. I love Savannah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's a great place.
1: Well, then I will go back.
2: So we'll we we hope to eventually get to Charleston and see it, but but at least Cameron's going to take us with her.
1: The highlight for me and for no one else in the group, uh, it was girls and me. And my highlight was the uh, aircraft carrier that is parked in Charleston. I just had to kind of drag them through the aircraft Mm -hmm. carrier. Mm -hmm. But that was the fun part for me. But it was cool. That and the drinking.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, that's (laughs) fun.
1: Katie's like, oh, yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So do we have any more shout outs? I'm done. Okay. All right. Well, Scott, Uh you are in the big chair this week. Okay. And you're talking about something. And I, I honestly have forgotten. I know Again? that I, I text you guys. Was it two days ago? Three yes. days ago? Yeah. And said,
1: Not long enough to have forgotten.
2: What are we doing? Mm-hmm. And you said, I hope it's this. George because, Wallace. Okay. <laughs> okay. Because that's what you've been preparing all week. So, all week. All right. Well, are we ready? I, I'm, I guess I'm the dummy today.
1: <sighs> or maybe I am.
2: <laughs> we'll depending see. on how this goes we'll see
1: so we find ourselves this week in the late spring of 1972 and it's just about one month exactly after the watergate case uh took place and we covered that earlier this year in episodes 22 and 23 that was back in may and june okay so this is going to be season three episode 28 so it was five weeks ago and okay. we talked about watergate um, and that happened, like I said, in June of 72. So stick around because there are some ties between the story we're going to tell today and the whole Watergate mess, the people who were involved in it. You guys remember E. Howard Hunt? Yes. Played by uh, Woody Harrelson in the HBO series White House Plumbers. Yes. He figures into this story.
2: Okay. Oh, okay. All right.
1: So we'll talk about him when we get there. Okay. So, a bit over one month before that infamous event at that famous hotel in Washington, D.C., it was a Monday, May the 15th, 1972. Imagine that we are hovering in the sky like a drone above an outdoor shopping mall in Laurel, Maryland, which is located about 15 miles northeast. And here we go with directions again 15 miles northeast of Washington, D.C.
2: So, is the man looking at this or is the man not? I'm totally confused if he's
1: looking or not. Kane it's east is the of Washington, D.C.
2: The man
0: is looking at it. Okay. <laughs> According to Ellison. According to <laughs> geography. We're going to have to
1: get her in here. To- Anytime we have directions on the show, we need Ellison in here to explain <laughs> yeah, it to that's the right.
0: listeners. That's I was trying right. to look up Laurel. You said Laurel, Maryland? Yes. Yeah, because my brother lives kind of close to that, I
1: think. Yeah, it's 15 miles northeast of Washington and 15 miles southwest of Baltimore. It's right on I 95. Uh, if you're going from uh, okay. one to the other, you yeah. can't miss it.
2: Okay.
1: All right. So Laurel is a city of around 30,000 people. And that's as many as live in our entire county here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Yes. yes. Like I said, it was a Monday. Uh, it was the day before the primary vote in Maryland on a Tuesday, right? Like primaries always are. The weather was warm that day. It was a sunny afternoon. There were about a thousand people gathered in that strip mall parking lot. It was around three thirty local time. To hear fifty-two-year-old George C. Wallace the governor of the state of Alabama delivered his vote for me for president speech one last time before the next day's vote. Okay. Standing on a temporary coverage stage and behind his specially constructed uh, bulletproof lectern, Wallace delivered his standard stump speech, which had not changed much since his 1968 campaign for president, when he basically created a new brand of conservative politics in this country. Wallace's bullet points as always, delivered in plain, uh, plain English, not the noncommittal political mumbo-jumbo that the American people were used to hearing. Uh, the bullet points were law and order, the dangers of big government, and the politics of division. And you can s- insert race there for yeah, that. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <clears throat> you, so like. you talk about Wallace, that's what yeah. you're talking about. Yep. So after Wallace climbed off the stage after his speech, and against the advice of these Secret Service agents who were protecting him, he walked over towards the crowd of spectators. Like I mentioned, it was warm that afternoon around four o'clock by this time, so Wallace had removed his suit coat to interact with his supporters and at least one detractor, it turned out. As Wallace mingled, often reaching into the line of people to shake hands, a CBS News cameraman captured an unfortunate and horrifying series of events. But before we tell you what happened to George Wallace in the 53rd year of his life, let's take a quick look back at his entire life. Okay. And answer a question of how exactly the governor of Alabama ended up lying on his back in a pool of his own blood in a Maryland shopping mall parking lot. Okay. Wallace was born on August the 25th, 1919. He grew up in the small Alabama town of Clio, C L I O, but pronounced Clio.
2: It is pronounced Clio? It
1: is. Really? Yes. Okay. Uh, That's in southeastern Alabama, all the way down in Barber County. That's close to Houston County. Which is where Columbia, Alabama is, which mm-hmm. is where the Anglin brothers ended up in Alcatraz after they robbed a bank there. Remember from yep. our Alcatraz our series? Alabama tie. Yeah. Yep. Um, Wallace's parents were farmers. His grandfather was the town doctor, and little George often accompanied his grandpa on house calls around the community. Steve Flowers is a former state legislator. He writes a weekly syndicated column on Alabama politics that appears every week in papers across the state, including the Cherokee County Post-Herald, he has called Barber County the home of Alabama governors. Because besides Wallace, six other governors of our state were born and raised in Barber County. Wallace himself once joked that the reason so many politicians came from Barber was that the county was so poor that politics was about the only way to get out.
2: Hmm.
1: Oh, okay. And remember that Wallace was 10 years old, when the stock market crashed in October of 29. So he grew up poor during the depression in Barber County, just like every other white and black person in Barber County.
2: Yeah. Okay. yeah.
1: And so just like more than a few politicians to be before him, Wallace made his way from Barber County to Montgomery, the state capital, and had become a page in the Alabama Senate at the age of 15. He graduated from law school at the university of Alabama in 1942, where along the way he had been chosen freshman student body president and became captain of the university's boxing team and he boxed in the bantamweight class so in college he weighed somewhere between 112 and 118 pounds that's bantamweight
0: that is less so, than i weighed in college so that's
2: like
1: it's Western shadow boxing yeah
2: <laughs> yeah i'm five i'm five feet tall
1: well i guess it's a fair fight if the other guy's the same weight as you oh, yeah right? so that's so the it's whole point b-
2: Bantam is, is that Bantam the weight. lowest weight possible. I think
1: featherweight is the lightest. Oh,
2: feather. Is, There's, yeah. a There's a lighter than a feather.
0: 112-pound grown man. Sure. Wow. That's, that's, little, okay, I'm, yeah. I'm going to shut my mouth. All
1: right. <laughs> After flying as part of a B-29 bomber crew over Japan on uh, 10 missions in the final months of World War II, Wallace returned home and opened a law practice in 1945. He was already married to his first wife, Lurleen, She was a Tuscaloosa native. He met her while he was a student.
2: Lurleen.
1: That's right. Uh, And by the following November, this is 46 now, Wallace was a duly elected member of the Alabama legislature. By all accounts, Wallace was gregarious and confident despite his small frame. And with this election that he had won in 46, he had rekindled a love for politics that he had first discovered when he was a Senate page back in the 30s in Montgomery. Right. So, 1958 comes along and Wallace runs for governor and loses. And then famously tells one of his assistants a despicable phrase about which issue he would not allow himself to be outmaneuvered on the next time. I'm certainly not going to repeat it here.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've you talked about, about,
1: it about it. But in it industry. had everything to do with race.
2: Yeah. We, we talked about that. You brought that up in a in yeah. an episode and I don't remember which one it was, but yeah.
1: we've talked about it. Yeah. So, A conveniently converted staunch segregationist by four years later, Wallace won the race for governor in 1962 and proudly waved his brand new race card at the inauguration when he uttered those infamous words that every student of Alabama history has heard. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Actually, everybody in the country. Pretty much heard of George Wallace because he said that at his inauguration in January of 1963. So that made the news everywhere,
0: and there went the reputation of
2: the state of Alabama
1: in one sentence. And then some more to come. Famously, yeah,
2: yeah, Yeah, that, yeah. Uh,
1: Famously, Wallace was much more of a campaigner than he ever was an administrator, Uh, and that's throughout his political career. So for him, the fun was in the winning, not so much in the governing.
2: I think there's a lot of yeah. That's probably politicians like that.
1: You're like the dog who caught the car. Oh, shit. What do I do now?
2: Now yep. I'm yep. elected.
1: Perhaps because of that very inclination, the next few years were a shameful time in Alabama, at least by modern standards. We will not go into the details about Bull Connor in Birmingham and the stand in the schoolhouse door and the Edmund Pettus Bridge event in Selma,
0: God.
1: but we do have a two-part series from the summer of 2021 that you can go back and listen to. It tells the story of what happened at the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham in September of 1963. Mm-hmm. So go back and check that out if you want to get a good vibe on what was going on in Alabama.
2: Yeah, those are very good episodes, I think. I mean, even if we did do them, but I think, I think we did a really great job. Yay us. Yeah, us. Yeah. yeah.
1: George Wallace was uh, not what you might consider to be an overt racist. He cloaked his segregationist views by arguing for states' rights over the increasingly persistent push on the federal level uh, for civil rights for black Americans.
0: I don't know, we may have to disagree on that. I, I would call him an overt racist. Yeah, when you
1: say I that. I think in your by speech, modern standards you're right. But I, I guess what I mean is back the time, then he was considered not an overt racist.
0: I would wow. I'd, I'd put his name next to it in the dictionary.
1: I, I would t- I mean, I think time has <laughs> Who the
2: heck was, yeah. was overt in that time then if well, he was oh you're getting to that. Okay. Sort
1: of. George Wallace was not the man who expressed his public support for the Ku Klux Klan. He did not toss around the N word, at least not in public. Okay. The worst phrase I could find that Wallace ever spoke in a public forum regarding his feelings about race was to refer to Black Americans as unambitious Africans. Oh, <sighs> which of course is one hundred percent racist.
2: Yes, yes.
1: But like we said back in '63,
2: that was that's how you said the not racist. You didn't say
1: the yeah you you Good didn't Lord. say the quiet part out loud, and that was one way to do it. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. Of course, if you know anything about Alabama history, you know that. George Wallace's actions always spoke louder than any words that he could have said. He did allow Bull Connor to deploy those fire hoses and attack dogs in Birmingham. And he stood in the schoolhouse door at Foster Auditorium to prevent two black students from uh, registering to attend the University of Alabama.
2: That is a very famous picture.
1: Yes. He also later sent his segregated state trooper force to stop the first attempt at the march from Selma to Montgomery. Mm Mm-hmm. George Wallace Jr. wrote a book about his father in 2001 titled, Governor George Wallace, The Man You Never Knew. Oh. In it, George Jr. tells readers loudly and proudly that his father was never a racist, that he was simply uh, a man who made a Faustian bargain. He gave away his soul in order to get elected governor of the state of Alabama.
2: Well, I mean, in, and you did say that there was, he he loved the winning. Right more than the actual what it took what would you do to, do to win governor? what yeah. did
1: richard nixon try to do to yeah. win
2: so so there play, may be something to that if you'll play a racist to win an
0: election you are a racist
1: i don't disagree with that at all
0: i don't either yeah i really yeah. don't
1: george like, jr wrote this about uh about his father he wrote and i'm quoting the poverty and deprivation that my father witnessed and experienced as a young man growing up in barber county gave birth to a profound empathy for the needs of all people both black and white. Now these are among the beliefs of some of Governor Wallace's most dedicated defenders.
0: Yeah, your own son, I guess so. Yeah. But my Do
1: eyes, your research, make up your own mind. But in the, the same, know, yeah.
2: but in the same sense, he's he's presenting himself and, and doing and saying the things that it's gonna take to win this election, which is being uber racist. Exactly. Okay.
1: Yeah. All right, whatever. You're 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 right on it. Okay. Yeah. So in nineteen sixty six At a time when the state constitution prohibited the sitting Alabama governor from running for re-election, Wallace talked his wife Lurleen into running. For what? For governor. And she beat nine other Democratic challengers in the Democratic primary and walked over the Republican candidate in November to become the state of Alabama's first ever female governor. Our second elected female governor is sitting in Montgomery now, Kay Ivey.
2: Why don't I know this? Yeah, you know that. Because
1: you dozed off during Alabama history uh, in oh, 10th yeah. grade.
0: Was, um was governor and uh, <laughs> I, I had, I, I'm truly the dummy You know, today. that's how like, you know, the, is it the nursing building that JSU's named after her?
1: Mm, yeah, one of the things that she dedicated, she passed away two years after she was elected. She had cancer. She did not survive her so four-year year term as governor. she did
2: not serve a full term.
1: But one of the things she was dedicated to was mental health and education and she kind of, believe it or not in that sense she picked up the mantle that her husband had he had done a lot i mean there's a george wallace community college in several places around the state of alabama are, trade schools and education was one of his and, and health
2: there are benefits. many many things in the state named after him Abs- yeah and a lot of them have to do with
1: education well, he was a governor four times so he had plenty of time oh, to get his name so yeah i stuff. guess
2: i missed that she was there for two years but but did a lot for mental health and education. Yeah, she right? did.
1: But she passed away in 68. And so uh, the duly elected lieutenant governor at the time, his name was uh, uh, Brewer, Albert Brewer. He served out the last two years of that term. And then he ran for election on his own right in 60, or in, in 70. But now it's 68 when Lurleen passed away. But George had to do that because he needed the platform of the governor's office in order to continue to show the people of the entire country what he would do if he was elected president and he can't do that if he's not the governor of the state. So mm-hmm. 68 rolls along or comes along and his wife passes away, but he's going to run for president in 68. And you guys know how sometimes we talk about no matter what year we visit, when we set the table or whatever, it seems like the world is burning. Yes. Okay. Well, in 1968, the world was fucking burning. All right. Uh, the still escalating war in Vietnam, starting with the Tet offensive in January of that year had, shown pretty much every sensible u.s citizen that the war in vietnam was unwinnable there were race riots in the big cities there were student revolts against the draft on college campuses and and there were the assassinations of two of the most influential political figures of the day all of this in 1968 and in a lot of ways 1968 is still burning in this country today And one more part of what was wrong in the world in 1968 was that one man, the de facto governor of Alabama, was running for president as a hate-filled politician in a country that already had plenty to hate and fight about. Yeah. Yeah. And Wallace, of course, lost that presidential election in 68. That was when Nixon won for the first time. But in the process, Wallace had become the voice of the South. And it didn't matter to Southerners that Wallace had lost the election because the South had been losing since the Civil War.
2: Good Lord. They're... Their choices were Nixon and Wallace that Nixon
1: year. Nixon and Wallace and uh, Humphrey was the Democrat that year. Wallace ran as an independent in 68. Okay. So Hubert Humphrey was the Democratic nominee for president in 68. And that was a very close race between Nixon and Humphrey.
2: So
0: he just couldn't get the Republican nomination?
1: No, uh, Wallace was a Democrat.
0: Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I
1: know what, you th- uh, I know no, what you're thinking, no, no, no. but yeah, yeah Wallace yeah. was a Democrat, but he no, ran okay. as an independent yeah. because yeah. his best hope to make something happen as a third party candidate in 68 was to keep either of the two main candidates from getting a majority. And then the election gets thrown into the house of representatives Mm -hmm. and the house of representatives was controlled by the Democrats. Mm -hmm.
2: And then he would, so
1: Wallace wielded a lot of power, even though he didn't have a legitimate shot to win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In fact, um, Wallace gained enough of a following in 68. He got 10 million votes that year. That was about uh, 15% of all the votes that were cast. And so four years later, when the 72 presidential election rolls along, Wallace was widely considered to be a serious political contender.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Again, not with a legitimate chance to win, but to become sort of a kingmaker. He, could, he had a lot of power as that third-party candidate.
0: Mm-hmm. Why? But why did he not decide to run as a Democrat?
1: Because of everything that I just told you, okay. he had more power. If he's because but if like he runs as a Democrat, he's going to lose to Humphrey in the uh, Democratic primary. So he,
0: he he knows he has no chance of winning that yes. primary. Okay, that's what I was. His own party's not going to.
1: Yeah, he's 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 too extreme for the Democrats nationwide. That's what I was thinking, but yeah. I just
2: was making. Sure. And I think a lot of people forget that he was a Democrat. <laughs> yeah, when my they, mind was flipped because yeah. yeah, because um, it's you know a lot of people. When they want to talk about racism and things like that, they want to automatically think Republican. Mm-hmm. But that's absolutely not true. Yeah, it's, not it's true. All, it's all parties. Mm-hmm. And,
1: and so I was going to tell you guys this later, but since we're talking about it, let me tell you now. So there's this one theory that President Nixon, before the 72 election, reached out to Wallace and said, look, everybody in the state of Alabama knows that your brother Gerald is a fucking crook. And we're going to s- we're going to stick the IRS on him unless you agree to run as a Democrat in 72 instead of an independent. Oh! And so Wallace ran as a Democrat in 72. And the suspicion is that it was because of the threat to the IRS coming in and exposing a bunch of corruption in Montgomery. <laughs> and that's a better scenario for 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 Nixon I- to get reelected because there's no way. Even if Wallace won the Democratic primaries leading up to the Democratic convention, the Democrats still aren't going to put him on the ticket.
2: And that, so then he's like out of the way. Such a Nixon thing to do, too. <laughs> oh yeah,
1: yeah. Go does back the, and listen to the Watergate thing if you think this sounds outlandish.
2: Yeah does the does the IRS want to check out Montgomery right now?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you just put an idea in I mean, somebody's I'm head. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, so at the time when seventy two rolls along, the five foot seven. George Corley Wallace was at the height of his political prowess, already a name nationwide because of his uh, segregation forever inauguration speech and the stand in the schoolhouse door, both in 63. And now he's a legitimate candidate for president. And it is it run in 68, convinced a lot of people that he was going to do well in 72. I mean, 10 million votes, right? So Wallace gets reelected governor in 70. Even though the Nixon campaign, here we go again with Nixon, they sent $400,000 to Brewer's campaign to try and keep Wallace from becoming governor because, again, yeah. Wallace needs the governor's desk to stand on to Nixon. run for president. And
2: Nixon is, I mean, he's ridiculously paranoid oh, yeah. about everything. Yeah. So he doesn't want Wallace well, running against him.
1: Every president spends his first term running, preparing to run for his second term, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, Like we mentioned that Lurleen had passed away. Um, And so the 72 election again comes along. And then about the time that Wallace is getting geared up to run and he needs something, a platform to really base his campaign on. that's when the Supreme Court determines that in order to racially integrate all of the schools in the country, they're going to bus students out of their school district and send them to other places to get the ratio of black Mm -hmm. to white that that Mm -hmm. they've arrived at. So that's Wallace's federal busing of students. That's his big number one thing.
2: He's going to stop all that.
1: Send me to the White House, he says, on the campaign trail, and I will get the federal government out of your face. So once again, Wallace is running on race. And once again, he's not, he's saying the, He's not saying the quiet part out he's, loud.
2: He's just saying, I'll get, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I got you. States' yeah. rights.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. weird to
0: hear Democrats say that,
2: but yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Who, they me? Said, hey,
2: they said a lot of it back in this yeah. day. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Lots.
1: So in May of 1972, as Wallace headed to Laurel, Maryland to continue his campaign for president, Richard Nixon and frontrunner George McGovern in 72, they're both polling around 41%, and Wallace is at 18%. And he's in second place on the Democratic side. It sounds like a small number, but he was still concerned for the Nixon campaign, yeah. just to kind of follow up on what we mentioned, because the Democrats are never going to put Wallace on the ticket, no matter what he does. And Nixon becomes concerned that if Wallace doesn't get what he wants from the Democrats, he's going to break off again mm-hmm. and do a third party run again. And Nixon's already convinced him to run as a Democrat with the threat of the IRS investigation over his head. But the, the guys at CREEP, remember the committee to reelect the president? <laughs> yes. So the creeps at CREEP are running all of these different scenarios. And one of them is, oh, shit, what if Wallace gets kicked out of the Democratic Party? And between May or June and November, he can run his own campaign again mm-hmm. as an independent. And he's going to take votes from Nixon. He's not going to take any votes from McGovern in the fall. Got gotcha. you. So here we go again with a scenario where it could get thrown to the house of representatives
2: meanwhile, so wallace nixon, has got to go yeah well meanwhile nixon is thinking about all of this and you know what he's not thinking about the well, american people well <laughs> there he's, you go, there
1: he, go. he's 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 got a lot of cookie jars he's got with his a hands lot in lot
2: of stuff that yeah. is very selfish to think about so hang
1: on <laughs> to that thought about nixon's desperation and paranoia and what he might do to win all right so we've gotten you we've gotten george wallace yes to that shopping mall in Laurel, Maryland on May the 15th, making 1972, his,
2: making, making his, his final speech. speech.
1: That's right. There's one other man who figures into this story today that we need to focus on. And we will tell you everything that you need to know about him after these words from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you in part by a Outdoor Services. You know, they're located right here in Cherokee County. And I called Alan myself just a few weeks ago, and he and his crew came out to my house, pressure washed the whole thing. It looks brand new. Well, as brand new as my house can possibly look after 25 years. But all I did was call Alan at 256-706-7964. He and the guys showed up and cleaned up everything. It looked fantastic. The pollen has fallen a little bit since then. So if you haven't done this already, now is the perfect time to call Alan and A&W Outdoor Services at 256-706-706. 7964 and let them do for you what they've already done for me.
2: It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures
0: await wet a hook in beautiful Weiss Lake, swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club, climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village, hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve, take a day's long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park, and much, much
1: more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds. And they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be.
2: So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the chamber by visiting cherokee-chamber.org.
0: Are you in the market for a full-time Weiss Lake home or recreational lot? Let Trini Davis and Elizabeth Powell put their All-Star Property Group at Keller Williams Realty to work for you. Trini and Elizabeth are locals themselves, so they know the Weiss Lake area and with over 40 years of experience, their professional listing and buying agents, talented home stagers and photographers, and specialized marketing team will work to make your lakefront dreams come true. Check out the Keller Williams team on Facebook at All-Star Property Rome, You can also visit at All-Star Property Rome to browse their images on Instagram or give them a call at 706-844-7493. That's the All-Star Property Group with Keller Williams Realty at 706-844-7493. You can hit pause, call them now, and make your Weislake Lake dreams a reality.
2: Thank you to all of our sponsors, and now back to the show.
1: Okay, guys, so we've told you about George Wallace. <clears throat> Let's tell you about the other main character in today's true crime tale. Arthur Herman Bremer. Okay. B-R-E-M-E-R. Bremer. What? I'm going to say Brenner at some point, but it's Bremer. M- yeah. Her. He was born on August the 25th, 1950. Arthur was 21 years old on the day our story takes place. Okay. Wow,
2: 21.
1: He was the son of a uh, truck driver, a native of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. All his life, according to the people who knew him, Arthur was a loner, goofy, a weirdo. Okay. Their words, not okay.
2: mine. Okay, okay.
1: Later, while he was in prison, Bremer wrote of his high school days that, and I'm quoting now, no English or history test was ever as difficult as waiting in the school lunch line alone, waiting to eat alone, while hundreds huddled and laughed and stared at me. Most recently employed as a school janitor part-time, Arthur Bremer was tired of being overlooked and laughed at by the rest of the world by the spring of 1972. In the couple of months before he fired five shots at Governor Wallace from three feet away, Arthur Bremer had been looking for someone in the American political arena to assassinate, mainly because he was tired of being nobody. He wanted to be famous.
0: That's not a good way to do it, Arthur. You and I know that.
1: He followed President Nixon to Canada in April of 72 to try and assassinate him there during a visit to our neighbors to the North. But the opportunity never presented itself. Hmm. Rumor had also been conspicuous around the Wallace campaign in the week before May the 15th.
2: Well, Nixon probably listened to his Secret Service. When they said, "Don't, yeah, don't, don't go out into the crowd. Stay where we've told you." That's correct. And you just, you said previously, Wallace. They told him not to. They not told him to not to out, that day. Yeah, and he did it anyway.
1: So every time they saw Brimmer, he was always wearing red, white, and blue from head to toe. He wore these uh, silver reflective sunglasses. He was, uh, he had short light, uh, light blonde hair, so he stood out in a crowd. Yeah. Especially the way he was dressed and the way he acted. He was overly eager to help pass out flyers, distribute Wallace campaign literature. And at all of the political rallies he attended, he always ended up in a camera shot somewhere because he always wormed his way up to the very front of the line. He always just wanted to be right there. We know why now, but they that's, didn't know that's then.
2: That's just
1: yeah. creepy. That is. Creepy. Weirdo. Like, yeah, like, his, like the people who knew him said, um, I mean, you're right. Uh, no.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and whenever he traveled, uh, Grimmer used his own name when he checked into hotels or motels. In other words, he was the typical lone nut, would-be assassin, who did not take precautions to conceal his intentions because he didn't have to. He was nobody. Mm. Just like the men who shot Abraham Lincoln, James Garfield, William McKinley, John F. Kennedy, and more recently had assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy, lone nuts every time. Yeah. And in all of those cases, anonymity was their camouflage. Arthur Bremer's the same just,
0: way. Just by default.
1: Yeah. And by all indications, Bremer was just as much of a nobody as those other murderers were I don't before they about, became murderers. I don't know
2: about the Lincoln guy because, you know, he was kind of well, a true, actor. Well, that's true, but nobody
1: suspect. That, well, then you're right. And the, he he hid his intentions with his notoriety.
2: Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, you're right. He did.
1: Yeah. Well, now there was kind of a conspiracy there, I guess.
2: Maybe. Yeah, you Go back about and that.
1: listen to our episode about the Lincoln assassination. Yeah. Shameless. I forgot to write that
2: down. (laughs) It's this season.
1: It was, yeah, it's this season. season. So, Bremer, just like everybody else, he wanted his name on this list. He wanted to be on the same list with John Wilkes Booth and Charles Gateau and Leon Chalgash and Lee Harvey Oswald and James Earl Ray and Sirhan Sirhan. He wanted to be on that list.
2: Well, that's quite a list to to aspire to.
1: Multiple news outlets reported that when Bremer was being dragged away from the scene of the crime, he asked one of the police officers holding him by the arms what he thought his autobiography might be worth.
2: Uh-uh. Wow.
1: Now, perhaps the reason Bremer asked that question was because FBI found in his car the next day after his arrest his 137-page diary that he began writing when he decided what he was going to do. The first sentence on the first page reads this way. Now I start my diary of my personal plot to kill by pistol either Richard Nixon or George Wallace.
2: Well, that's incriminating. And <laughs> I thought you were going to say, I kept waiting on the word.
1: That is incriminating.
2: I kept waiting on the word manifesto. I was like, uh, I come on. I think did. 137
1: pages is too short to be a manifesto. It is. It has Maybe. to be
2: longer. Okay. Uh,
1: the next year, Harper's Bazaar printed that entire thing in a six-part series really? in the magazine. And I tried to get a subscription on the website earlier this week. And it's so complicated <laughs> it, it wants to sign me in as my Facebook account or my Google account, and then it wouldn't let me. And then I got my passwords all fudged up.
2: Okay, so, so come I on, gave up. On it. Harper's bizarre. Yeah, get it Let's, together, Harper's. Let's make that easier.
1: Yeah. Okay, so now we're back in drone mode.
2: Here we're we hovering
1: are. over the parking lot in Laurel, Maryland. He's
2: shaking hands with everybody. They told him not to.
1: That's right. Okay. So
2: he was behind a bulletproof
1: lectern, lectern when he was speaking.
2: When he was speaking.
1: But now he's down in the crowd. And the way that we know what happened is because there was a CBS News cameraman who had been following the Wallace campaign for weeks. And everything that happened next is recorded for posterity. You can watch it on YouTube. Oh, wow. In the low-definition images that are typical of the time, Wallace is seen working his way along a line of people after finishing his campaign speech outside the strip mall. As we mentioned, it was hot afternoon. Suit coats off. Watch the video a few times. It's on YouTube, like I said, and you'll be able to see Brimmer, light-haired and wearing those reflective glasses in his red, white, and blue outfit, worming his way up towards the front few rows of Ooh, the crowd. you see
2: him, like, worming his way up With
1: his him? hand out. After you watch it a couple of times, you can pick him out oh when you see what's gosh. happening. And he's shouting out, George, George, come over here and shake my hand. Mm. Just as Wallace sticks his hand in the direction of the voice, Brimmer reaches through the front row of spectators. He rests his gun hand on the left shoulder of a white-haired older lady and with his stub nose thirty eight sitting right there, begins firing.
2: Oh, my uh, God! Bang,
1: bang, 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 bang. Five shots.
2: Well, I bet she ear. lost hearing in that ear.
1: I bet she did. And then scuffling and shouting. We're still on the video. And screaming. And amidst the screams, Bremer's face disappears beneath a mass of humanity. People jerking at him, punching him, pushing him to the ground. The cameraman gets bumped. The lens rattles for a couple of seconds. And then the cameraman, no mediocre journalist, this guy, remembers that he needs to find Governor Wallace in his eyepiece. And when he does quickly, he looks right down to his feet. And there's Wallace lying with his legs sprawled awkwardly. He's on his back on the asphalt. His blue short-sleeved dress shirt is already saturated with the blood. The woman in the yellow dress who throws her body on top of Wallace is his second wife, Cornelia. Later news reports reveal that there was a doctor in the crowd, so within seconds, Wallace and the three other men who received bullet wounds were being tended to, and in a few minutes, Wallace was whisked away in an ambulance. One bullet had ripped through Wallace's forearm and shoulder. Another entered his right abdomen and stomach. A third bullet pierced his ribcage and lodged in his spine. Oh! According to George Jr. in his book, his father told him later that his entire life passed before his eyes on his way to the ground.
0: Well, uh, Yeah. yeah.
1: And according to George Jr. Also, uh, the governor never lost consciousness while he lay there. What he did was, in those moments, Wallace remained immobile with his eyes closed, and he explained later that he played dead because he was afraid there might be a second gunman in the crowd.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's
1: a good idea. Yeah. All right, so let's take a breath. How about a couple of moments of levity amidst all of this carnage? Okay. Ross Spiegel was the husband of the white-haired lady that I just mentioned. Yes. He was standing right behind his wife, which means he was standing right beside Brimmer when the shots were fired. As he told the Washington Post afterward, I climbed up on this man, I throwed my legs around him, grabbed his head, and down we went. Dang. And according to George Jr.'s book, again, when a Secret Service agent ran over to uh, kneel down to check on Wallace, the agent still had his gun drawn, and it was unintentionally pointing at the governor's head, uh, Wallace reached up, pushed the gun to the side and said, I wish you wouldn't point that at me. I've already been shot enough for one day.
2: <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> and you can hear him saying that with his like Southern of course. politician you know, accent. that South
1: Alabama accent.
2: Thick. i um... been shot enough for one day. <laughs> oh, I wish you wouldn't point that at me. <laughs> Foghorn leghorn. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God!
1: So yeah, even yeah, you know, lying on there on the then. ground, Wallace at least kept his sense of humor.
2: Be a professional here.
1: <laughs> George Wallace would not leave his bed at Holy Cross Hospital for seven weeks, and he would never walk again.
2: Ooh, no! I I figured that when you said this. Yeah, spine. And, yeah.
1: And we'll wrap up the George Wallace portion of this story shortly. Meanwhile, back in the shopping mall parking lot, Arthur Bremer was bloody. By the time three policemen dragged him into a waiting patrol car.
2: He got beat up by a crowd.
1: Yeah. And it came to light during Brimmer's trial, which began within three months of the shooting, that he had lost his job as a busboy at the Milwaukee Athletic Club in late 1971 because customers complained that he talked to himself. Mm -hmm. Angered by his demotion, Brimmer quit that job in February. And then that's when he began keeping the diary. That's when he began devising his plot to turn himself from a nobody into a somebody. I can report to the two of you here now that Bremer's attempt to make sure he was no longer casually disregarded was a total failure for, among other reasons, that he was tried and convicted in a trial that lasted five days. Oh. The defense argued that Bremer was legally insane at the time of the shooting, but the jury didn't buy that. And after deliberating for 95 minutes, Bremer got sentenced to 63 years in prison. For a variety of offenses, Mm.
2: but let me just including attempted murder. Let me just say this. Let me just be devil's advocate for just a second because he's not even hiding that he's trying to do this. Right? He's out in the open. He's using his own name. I can see where that would be a good defense. You because part of that is you'd have to be nuts, not understanding right from wrong. Well, you're not even trying to conceal what you're doing. And that part of that is one of the reasons you want to conceal it is because you know what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. So I can totally understand that defense,
1: but well, well, it just didn't work. Something worked because they gave him 63 years, but he appealed that sentence mm-hmm. and uh, they knocked 10 years off of it. And the appeal gave him a 53 year sentence.
2: And the other question is do you really think he can get a fair trial? Anywhere, They tried him
1: right there in Maryland.
2: Uh, Yeah. uh,
1: yeah. And I I mean, look, let's think about it. I suppose, uh, just bear with me for a second. I Mm -hmm. suppose the attempt on George Wallace's life was not a total loss for Arthur Bremer because the pathetic misfit and loner was famously the inspiration for Robert De Niro character Travis Bickle in the 1976 Martin Scorsese film, Taxi Driver.
2: Yeah.
1: About a lone nut who becomes increasingly detached from reality and eventually tries to assassinate a political candidate before turning his attention to rescuing a 13-year-old prostitute played by a 12-year-old, Jodie Foster. Yes. Katie, have you seen Taxi Driver? No. Add
2: that to the list. (laughs) Put it to the top.
1: Yeah. I watched it it this morning. I hadn't seen it in 10 years. I watched it this morning. I've been up since 5. I couldn't sleep this morning. It's pretty good. Let me add it to Um, the list. Nominated for Best Picture, and De Niro and Foster were nominated for their roles. Nobody won. Uh, Rocky won the Oscar for Best Picture that year. That's a good movie, too.
2: Katie. Have you seen Rocky? I have seen Rocky. Okay, I was about to say, <laughs> I have seen Rocky. <laughs> I don't think I've seen them all. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, okay. I've there are a lot them. of them now.
2: Well, okay, I will take that back. Yeah. I'm not I'm seen... adding it to my... Increasing... Look that
1: little... Wow.
2: Look how long... You're going to need a day bigger day. phone. I have mm. not seen the newer
1: Rocky, The Creed.
2: And all of that.
1: I think there's three Creed movies now. But yeah. I have heard
2: that they're really good.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I've, I've nothing but good things those about those the Creed
2: yeah, yeah, I should check this out. Taxi Driver.
1: Taxi Driver, nineteen seventy six. De Niro. <laughs> he was still unknown then. Oh, okay. I mean he he um, he had been in a, a another Scorsese movie. I read this this morning. He had been in another Scorsese movie that had just come out. So, and he was in Italy shooting a second film and he was flying back and forth from Italy to New York to shoot taxi driver Mm -hmm. and somebody recognized him. What he did was he would take 12 hour shifts as a taxi driver to prepare for the role. And so one night somebody got into the cab and had (laughs) recognized him from that one other film he'd been in. And so he made a joke. He's like, yeah, you know, one week you're on the silver screen, the next week you're driving a cab.
2: And they just rolled with it. Yeah. Like whatever. That's awesome.
1: And if you know anything about your assassination history, you know that the 81 attempt on Ronald Reagan's life, Taxi Driver was what inspired John Hinckley Jr. to do that because he was infatuated with Jodie Foster and he thought that if he killed the president, she would notice him and want to go out with him. He's not
2: her type, if you know what I mean.
1: Well, Mm -hmm. nobody knew that then. (laughs)
0: Life imitating art, then art imitating life. That's Mm -hmm. true. That's true. Vice versa.
1: And as we have mentioned uh, about this low-nut assassin thing, George Wallace Jr. does not buy that theory. In his book, again, one more time, he still thinks that Nixon had something to do with having his father shot.
2: Oh. Well, and again, I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I can understand someone thinking that.
1: Well, our old friend E. Howard Hunt in his autobiography, he wrote that on the day after the assassination or the, the shooting of George Wallace, Chuck Colson, one of those guys at Creep, that was, he was the cutthroat, would do anything to get Nixon reelected. All of them were, but Colson was one of the worst. Mm-hmm. He called E. Howard Hunt the next day and wanted him to fly to Milwaukee and plant George McGovern campaign literature in Bremer's apartment so that it would look like McGovern had Wallace shot to keep him from mucking up the Democratic primary.
2: Good Lord.
1: And E. Howard Hunt says that he denied He refused to do that.
2: Well, at least he refused to do that.
1: Yeah. That's all speculation. That's all conjecture. And there remains to this day no hard proof that any of that scenario actually occurred. And Arthur Brimmer is not talking. Oh, did I mention he's still alive? Where is Arthur now? Brimmer was released from prison in 2007 at the age of 57, which makes him uh, 73 now. His probation ends in 2025. Wow. Conditions of his release include electronic monitoring and, here's a no-brainer, orders to stay away from politicians and political candidates.
2: So he just has orders to do this? They're just assuming that he's going to do this?
1: That's right. Wow. Where is he? He's in Maryland. He's living in sort of like a, he can't get a job, he can't do that's anything. I, one yeah. article that I read, there's a, there's a church outreach group that kind of takes care of indigent and, and people who are involved in the parole system but don't have any means of support, and he's involved in that somehow. Um,
2: he's a he's a client of theirs.
1: I guess that's what you would call it. I right? mean,
2: not me over here worried about the yeah <laughs> assassin.
1: Yeah, well, he's he's seventy three. I guess they figure he's harmless now.
2: And he's been out for quite some time. Yeah, he's been out for
1: uh, sixteen years.
2: Hasn't reoffended, right? Okay. As far as we
1: know, okay. George Wallace, uh, as we mentioned earlier, he was wheelchair bound for the rest of his life. He did run for and was elected governor of Alabama twice more in seventy four and then again in eighty two. And in 1982, before that election, the former boxer decided that was his fifth run for governor. Remember, he lost in 58 the first time. And so what he did, one of his platforms was he asked his old punching bags, the black people of Alabama, Uh to forgive him for his past indiscretions regarding the way he spoke about them on the campaign trail. And Wallace got overwhelmingly uh, the black vote in 82. Wow. Yeah. What? Now, was Wallace sincere when he did that? Or was it just one last lashing out of a
2: One last politician selling of the soul?
1: Doing what he had to do to get elected.
2: You know, it's very difficult to say because- It is very difficult to say. Was he a racist or was he true? Was he at one point- believed what he was saying and doing and then all of a sudden realized that he was he had been wrong the whole time. He,
1: he strangely he ended up with the majority of the electorate on both in both 64 or 62 and 82. You both like times him. he's going with what the majority think.
2: You'll oh yeah. Well, and you like to think that he truly had a heart changing.
1: If you watch the videos of some of the speeches that he gives later in his life gave later in his life um he, he he certainly looks sincere.
2: He see, he comes across as and he yeah. certainly hoped that he that he was yeah. and and obviously, folks in the black community are are believing him because they're voting yeah. for him.
1: Now there's there's this one uh, sequence where he, he he tears down his cheeks and he's sitting in front of a church congregation. He says, "I'm sorry, I was wrong," and he's crying in the audience. Uh, that was the church, the the Methodist Church in downtown Montgomery, where. Martin Luther King Jr. had preached before he began, before he became the voice of the civil rights movement.
2: So that's before Rosa Parks
1: in '55.
2: So that's either a major political stunt, yeah, or he's sincere.
1: He loved to run for office. Former,
2: Ah, that's a tough one. I know
1: former U.S. congressman and the late John Lewis, uh, who was a young man and had been beaten by Wallace's state troopers at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma in 1965. Uh, was interviewed in the months after Wallace passed away, and he said that he had forgiven George Wallace, but that he would never forget what Wallace did in the name of his political aspirations. There you go. So that's that's John Lewis's interpretation Excellent. of okay. what George Wallace's motivations were. Uh, there's a 1997 film uh, that was made by Warner Brothers for TNT titled George Wallace, and I bought it for eight bucks. I had to watch DVDs. I, I didn't know that my Xbox would play DVDs. I just dropped him in thinking this is never going to work. And it did. It played him. So I watched both of those yesterday. It was who a two part series. Who plays Wallace? Gary Sinise.
2: Oh, okay. And was, uh, and Lieutenant won Dan?
1: Lieutenant Dan. And he won uh, a Primetime Emmy Award for that role. Huh. And guess who plays Cornelia Wallace, the young second wife? Who? A young Angelina Jolie. Uh uh-uh. uh. She, she won a Golden Globe Award for her role in that film. Wait,
0: what's wow. this film called?
1: It's called George Wallace. It's wow. a two-part DVD. Gary Sinise, George Wallace. Look it up. Okay. Now, there were a few liberties uh, that were taken with the facts, but I watched it having read all of this other stuff, and it was pretty much spot on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the family, the Wallace family, didn't care for it, obviously. Uh, we can probably add that to the <laughs> list of films that Katie hasn't seen and perhaps oh, no. Kelly hasn't seen. I'd never seen it. I think it was on TNT. It was made in 97, so it was a TV, a two-part, a two-night miniseries that that was run, it might have come out in 98, but Wallace died in 98. So I'm assuming that it was timed around,
0: yeah. I know. was like four, so I wasn't yeah. watching
2: I TNT. Was, I was in my first year at Auburn, so yeah, I you weren't was, watching it, yeah, no,
1: right? Yeah, we, we had cable and I had MTV for the first time, so I was watching Monty Python's Flying Circus, I imagine. <laughs> um, and guys, that's pretty much it. I've wrapped the whole darn thing up. That's uh, so the story of the attempted assassination of George Wallace. In May of 1972. So I don't know is, how we're going to fit that title.
2: Brimmer uh, is out. Brimmer is out and, old and about. Yeah. And, but has not, hasn't harmed anyone since his release.
1: Not enough to make the papers. Okay. Or the TV. All right. news. So.
2: Well, I guess there'll be no updates unless Brimmer reoffends, right?
1: Correct. And he's, you know, how much more time does he. I don't know. Possibly have to do that.
2: I'm not a doctor. I don't know.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Okay.
2: <laughs> well, thank you, Scott. That was that was way more interesting than I thought. It was way more interesting today. than I thought it
1: was going to be when that, I started.
2: That was, that was really good. I enjoyed it, and I learned all kinds of new things cool. today.
1: Well, don't forget to say something cool about us on your social media platform of choice or wherever you listen to us on your podcast platforms, because our goal here is to be completely famous one of these days, and when we are on one side of the velvet rope at the red carpet, we will not forget about you. <laughs> oh. Stop us. We will sign autographs. Please say something nice about us. It helps us and uh, it makes us more popular.
0: And I forgot that Scott talked Shane into letting us be a sponsor of the
1: Motown show coming up July the 28th.
0: July the 28th. So get your tickets for that. How How about that? See our sponsorship there.
1: We'll be there. Maybe we'll be outside signing autographs that night.
0: Exactly. (laughs) Maybe that's a terrible
1: idea. Is that it? Are we done? We're done. Good night, everybody.